Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to yet another edition of the Insurgents podcast. This is Frankie V, and I have Nikki V with me, and we're coming to you from the Sunshine State through Skype. How's it going, Nikki V? Good morning, Frank and everybody. Great to be here again. Well, we are still taking questions from listeners, and we'll just plunge in right now with the uh, first question on the docket here, and that is... What ideas do you have on ways to use social media in various forms for God's glory? I have a mixed audience. I have mostly believers, and then I have some non-believers. So my other part of the question is, how do we balance speaking about our faith, but also being sensitive and not bombarding people with the gospel in unhelpful ways? Well, I'd like to take a crack at this first You know, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. On most days, I love to hate it, but I do see a great use for it. Social media basically is a tool that is putting a microphone in the hands of every single person. So if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, LinkedIn, you have been furnished with a microphone. And how you use that microphone is going to determine how you impact and influence people. And Nicholas, one of the things I see when I look at particularly Facebook, and the reason why I mentioned Facebook is because Twitter, seeing a tweet from someone you follow is like spotting a dime in Niagara Falls. (laughs) It's very ineffective (laughs) in terms of people actually reading what you have to say. LinkedIn is like spotting a quarter in Niagara Falls. But Facebook, you know, it's a little bit better. It's like spotting a basketball in Niagara Falls, okay? So you you get a little bit more visibility. A blue basketball. (laughs) Yeah, right. In the midst of blue water that's pouring all over it. So just to use Facebook as an example, occasionally when I am in a risky mood that is risking my sanity and my mood, I'll look at my Facebook feed. And what I'm finding right now, at least, given the global lockdown that we are all in because of corona. I see a lot of people, Nick, if they're not spreading conspiracy theories, they're just bored. And so they're using this microphone, this platform, just to relieve their boredom. And that's when they're not going after another person over a political disagreement or a theological disagreement. That's another matter, and we've addressed that in other podcast episodes just the bloodletting that happens on social media over politics or theology. But I just see people bored, and they're really not doing anything productive. And so here's what I would like to say. And I've said this in other places, but I'm going to be more specific. I would like to challenge every single person who is listening to this podcast with a 15-day challenge. 
So get your calendar out and mark the date and count 15 days. Now, if you want to go beyond 15 days, that's even better. But I'm asking just 15 days. I'm challenging you to 15 days. And here's here's what it is. That twice a day in that 15-day time frame, you post two updates either on Facebook or if you use Twitter or, or all of them, you know, whatever social media you use. Two times post about the gospel of the kingdom. That could be a video. That could be a testimonial. It could be a quote from a book. It could be your own sharing of it. It could be a podcast episode. It could be an article. But twice a day, you know, morning, evening, morning, afternoon, afternoon, evening, for 15 days straight, how about using your platform to share something that actually is of monumental significance. And if you're listening to this podcast, which is the Insurgents podcast, this is a way that you could be responsible in advancing the insurgents. So that's my offering and that's my answer to this question. The only other thing I would say about bombarding people is I wouldn't even worry about that. I think, Nick, what people feel bombarded by is if you're constantly talking about something in a way that puts pressure on them, you know, you're couching it in a way that demands a response versus you giving a testimony. For example, this article really helped me or this excerpt really touched my heart. I want to expand on it. Or this podcast episode really adjusted the way I think or really encouraged me. And then if you're going to talk about the gospel itself or something the Lord has done, testimonials are basically immune from justifiable criticism. Nobody's going to argue with you saying, exactly. hey, this is what happened to me, and I want to share it with you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to attempt to invalidate your own personal experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really, um, for, by and large, safe territory to be on is uh, sharing kind of your own testimony, as you said. And of course, when we use that word testimony, people are thinking, oh, my story of how I got saved. We're not talking about that. You're just your testimony about any aspect of your walk in Christ, um, I think, is what Frank's referring to here. You know, just something as simple as I read this article, it really touched me. And here's the link, you know. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, one of the uh, tricky things to navigate on social media is it's really hard to gauge what tone of voice people are applying to your posts. Um, sometimes you think you're being tongue in cheek or funny or, um, you know, kind of benign and other people are reading it entirely different way. Um, so when it comes to, again, s speaking specifically to the questioner's topic of, um, you know, using social media as a platform for the gospel of the kingdom. I think you want to be as clear as you can with with leaving as little room as possible to misinterpret your tone. Um, you certainly don't want to be in people's faces. That's a turn off on every level, whether it's on social media or in person. I think it requires taking extra care on social media so that people don't interpret your posts as being in their face, you know, like you're wagging a digital finger at them um, as you're saying something. Uh, by the way, I've seen a new um, term coined since COVID-19 has started, and the term is digital missionaries. So that kind of applies to, to this question that this uh, listener has sent in.
And I think there's some nuance required with this. I think taking more of a passive approach is, and as I mentioned earlier, hey, I read this, or hey, I listened to this podcast, or hey, I watched this video, and um, this might this might be for someone out there today, or this might touch somebody, you know. So you're you're just kind of throwing it out there for somebody's perusal. I think that's much more likely to be better received if you're trying to get people to actually click and engage the piece of media that that you want them to watch or read or or listen to. Um, so I think that's that's one approach that is very important. And again, especially since tone of voice is really difficult to interpret many times, the shorter your words are, uh, the better. And then let the let the link or whatever it is that you're posting do the talking for you, which kind of leads into this tangential issue of this topic is, so what do I post? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't feel like they have anything to say or they don't feel like they can articulate it well enough to put it out there. Um, and you know, that might be the case in certain instances, but the reality is you don't even really need to do that. There's tons of material available mm. for you. I do this all the time. I don't necessarily come up with my own content uh, if I'm posting something, say, on Facebook. Um, I do sometimes, but it's not necessary. There's so many other things I could use out there. So just to give a couple of examples here, say from Frank's material, if I can do that, um, you know, you could certainly toss a quote out there from Insurgents or really any any one of Frank's books. Um, you could uh, provide a link to one of his podcast episodes. I think we're well up over 60 episodes for this podcast as of today. Mm -hmm. um, I know Frank has another podcast which has gone dormant, but uh, the Christ is All podcast has probably well over 100 episodes on it. So these are these are some things you could link. Frank, you have a YouTube channel too, I believe. That's right. Yep. Yeah. We have a YouTube channel. Yeah. So you've got an option of providing a link to you know YouTube video that perhaps has has been meaningful to you. I have often quoted some of Frank's articles from his blog or provided links for those. And I think some time ago, even before you wrote Insurgents, you did a series on the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's right, on maybe, the blog. Maybe you can give a little more detail on that, because I, I remember reading it. I don't remember where it's located, where people could access that. I appreciate that, Nick. Um, and we provide all of these resources so that you can be a quote-unquote digital missionary <laughs> for the insurgents. It's just a click away to share a resource that's blessed you to somebody else. But the series on the gospel, the kingdom on the blog is frankviola.org forward slash kingdom. And there are many, many articles on the gospel, the kingdom, uh, some of which I wrote before the book even came out. But we'll put the links to all of these resources in the show notes. And I just want to say how much I appreciate when people uh, who listen to this show, who read the blog, who've read the book, take a few minutes to share the resources with other people through their own social media platforms. I have received mail from people saying, hey, my life was changed because so-and-so, you know, shared a link with me on Twitter or on Facebook, and that's how I found your work. 
And I think every author or every content producer can resonate with that because none of our work will go anywhere, right? Unless the people who have been touched and blessed and changed by it actually take the time to share it with their friends, right? And unfortunately, the celebrity authors, the celebrity preachers put tons of money, Nick, in Facebook ads, Twitter ads, LinkedIn ads, yeah. and their stuff gets a lot of exposure because the money's behind it. And unfortunately, what they're sharing in most cases, in my personal judgment, is shallow, superficial, in many respects, runs contrary to the gospel of the kingdom. But having said that, you know, just from my own observation, the digital apostle or the digital missionary <laughs> is exotically rare because most of what I see in my social media feeds is either somebody hyperventilating on Facebook or Twitter because of some political issue or because of some theological disagreement, which turns into a blood war in many respects. And folks, that's that's not that's not a proper stewardship of your social media platform. And when I talk about social media and sharing, I'm talking about your own Facebook page, your own Facebook profile. I'm not talking about Facebook groups. Because in my experience, Nicholas, those are viper pits. And if you try to share something in a Facebook group, just get ready for a war and a blood splattering. You know, your own profile page, your own Facebook page, etc. That's the best place to share those things because you can also easily hide a comment if it's inappropriate, delete a comment if it's out of line. You know what I mean? Because it's your it's your home, as it were. It's like somebody coming to your house to listen to what you have to say. And if you want, you can kick them out the front door or the back door. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Is it GIF or GIF? Whatever the... I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say tomato, I say tomato. But <laughs> one of the GIFs I've come to use in a couple of Christian groups that I'm a part of is inevitably somebody will venture into the waters of asking a question that's going to elicit, you know, the typical war that's going to ensue. So as soon as I see the question, I use the guy sitting there eating popcorn watching a movie gif. Mm -hmm. uh, because what's about to ensue is um, you know, something that should be the kind of drama that's on a screen. So that's the kind of stuff that you really want to avoid um, because it is absolutely not only non-productive, it's counterproductive. Um, I can't imagine people leave those feeling good after that kind of a shootout with their brothers and sisters. <laughs> and nobody has changed positions, only dug their heels in yet further. At least that's been my observation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, what we're talking about here is very passive. I th it needs to be very passive. You're just putting stuff out there. And those who are hungry and those who are thirsty will click the link and they may be benefited by it. And those who aren't will pass on by. That's okay. You know, it's just it's just that same form. It's a digital form of the parable of scattering seed. You know, it's really what we're talking about here. Yes. And I do think there's something to say about how you present it. So, for example, for myself, if I see a link that says, hey, I just read this article. Check it out. All right. I'm really not inclined to look at it, probably, unless the heading grabs me. But if they say, oh, my goodness, you need to read this. Right. 
this really did something to me. Well, then I'm more inclined to check it out, right? Because I want to know, well, what is the excitement about, okay? And the other thing I wanted to say is, to me, in my observation, there is really no difference, by and large, between how Christians use social media, the kind of stuff they get passionate about, and the kind of stuff they get angry about, and the kind of stuff that elicits an emotional response. Um, There's no difference between the average, typical Christian and their use of social media and the average, typical lost person who doesn't know the Lord in the way they use social media. And I really think that that is a blot on the name of Jesus, because there should be a striking difference, not only in how we communicate, but what we talk about. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a great question, because this is a real minefield, and it's a minefield that many, many believers spend a great deal of time in. So, you know, the more we're talking about this question— And the answer, the more I I like it and think it's really important to discuss, because I was going to say if you're if you're under 40, but really right now with everybody locked up, we're all spending probably even more time than normal on social media. Yeah, absolutely. And so you could use it as an outlet for boredom, which to me is the low road. You can use it to vent and argue over politics or theology, which is the gutter road. Or you can share the gospel, the kingdom, and the insurgents, which is the highest road possible. And that's what I would encourage you to do. 15-day challenge. 15 days. Mark your calendars if you want to get in on this. I'm going to do it too, by the way, starting today. Of course, some of you are not going to hear this until the year 2021, 2022. So whenever you hear this, that's the beginning point of your 15-day. Twice a day share about the gospel of the kingdom, and let's see the insurgents spread. Yeah. Amen. Okay, let's go to the next question. Why was Paul not sent to baptize as were the other apostles? What is the significance of that? So here's the passage. I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, and then we'll get to the actual phrase that this person is asking about. 1 Corinthians 1, 11, and I'm reading from the Darby version. Uh, it's not a bad translation. It's a bit old, but it's quite good in my opinion. For it has been shown to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, that there are strifes among you, that is contentions and arguments. But I speak of this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, and I of Paulus, and I of Cephas or Peter, and I of Christ. Is the Christ divided? Has Paul been crucified for you? Or have you been baptized unto the name of Paul? I thank God that I have baptized none of you, unless Crispus and Gaius, that no one may say that I have baptized unto my own name. Yes, I baptized also the house of Stephanus. For the rest I know not if I have baptized any other. That just is interesting to me because <laughs> at first he says, I didn't baptize any of you. But then he remembers he baptized Crispus and Gaius. And then he remembers he baptized the house of Stephanus. <laughs> so don't you think so, like Timothy, Timothy gave him a little elbow and said, uh, Paul, actually, you did baptize. Very <laughs> <laughs> possible. Whoever he's dictating this to, right? Yeah. Okay, so here's verse 17. For Christ has not sent me to baptize, but to preach glad tidings, or the gospel, 
not in wisdom of word, that the cross of the Christ may not be made vain. So he's asking about this phrase, Christ has not sent me to baptize. What did Paul mean by that? All right. What say you, Nikki Vate? Yeah, I, I don't think you take that literally like Christ did not send me to baptize, like Paul got some kind of specific command from the Lord not to baptize people. I think Paul is responding to one of many problems of division that are existing in the church in Corinth. Um, this just being one more manifestation of that. Um, and one thought that I have about it is, you know, human beings are, are human nature remains unchanged through fallen human history and different people put different stock in things. Um, and I think part of what was going on here was there were some people who were perhaps claiming to a more lofty spiritual pedigree because they had been baptized by Paul as opposed to some lesser light. And so I think people were making all sorts of claims in terms of uh, like, like this mattered, who actually baptized you came attached with some kind of spiritual significance to it. Uh, not too dissimilar, you know, maybe some modern day counterpart ideas to this. Well, certainly could be baptism too, who, you know, laying some kind of special claim because somebody famous or some celebrity person, um, you know, baptized you. But even like, hey, I got my Bible signed by so-and-so or uh, I got my book signed by by such-and-such such an author. Just, you know, fallen nature being what it is, we seem to have this need to put stock in certain things. And um, it seems like that's a little bit of what's going on here in Corinth, that there were some people who were uh, laying claim to having been baptized by Paul, and that somehow that was supposed to equate with having some very special meaning. So I think Paul is, is addressing saying, I wasn't called to baptize, meaning here's how unimportant this is to me. I don't recall baptizing anybody. Oh, yeah, somebody just reminded me I did baptize so-and-so and so-and-so. And oh, yeah, I think I might have also baptized. Like, it's so unimportant to Paul who baptized these people that he doesn't even have a proper recollection of it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and I think it's really critical to point out that what was not important to Paul was who baptized the believers in Corinth or anywhere else for that matter. But it was important that they were baptized. Right. And, you know, Paul makes clear that baptism is crucial in the book of Colossians, in the book of Romans, and the story of how the kingdom community in Corinth was planted and raised up in Acts 18. It's clear that the new converts were baptized. So yep. Paul wasn't saying the Lord told me, that baptism isn't important or that baptism is not to be part of the gospel message. He just said he didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to declare the gospel. And I think you're dead on in why, because probably in his previous experiences, pre-Corinth, he saw this penchant for people to attach him baptizing them to be so wedded to him or to maybe say, well, Paul baptized me. And so that makes me special because you were baptized by somebody else. It would be kind of like me saying to you, well, Nikki V, 
guess what? A.W. Tozer baptized me. Who baptized you? <laughs> My baptism is better. I can top that baptism. <laughs> this is the spirit of, of the issue and what he's combating. And right, you're not. Put, you're not suggesting that Christians can get petty about things, are you? <laughs> That's unheard of in the Christian family, my friend. Unheard of. This is also one of those instances where it really highlights the importance of context. Um, you know, if you just read that verse and isolate it out, you could come away with the idea that baptism is irrelevant, according to Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, so context, I think, is, I mean, this is just a, a good example of, of why understanding Paul's letters in context is, is really important. I agree. And I'll give you an example of my own life, which may be uh, a parallel to this in another way. But in my 20s, at some point in my 20s, <laughs> I came to discover the importance of water baptism. And the things I shared about it in Insurgents and in the supplemental article on rethinking water baptism, I came to that understanding. And so consequently, every time I was instrumental in leading someone to Christ, I would baptize them. But there came a point in my early 30s where I stopped doing the actual baptism. And I asked other people to do the baptisms, right? I may have preached the gospel, led people to Christ to repent and believe, but then I would ask someone else especially if I was founding a kingdom community at the time. Other converts in that community, I would ask to do the baptizing. And I never really understood why I was doing that. It was more a matter of instinct. But looking back on it, I realized why I did that. And it was because I was breaking this clergy mentality, the exclusivity of this idea. I was breaking this idea that only clergymen can baptize, only clergymen can administer the Lord's Supper, you know, only clergymen can do such and such and such and such. And while I'm not a clergyman and have never been a clergyman, I wanted to make clear that the person who was preaching the gospel and who who was founding a a community of believers doesn't have to do it all. And this was a demonstration to show the priesthood of all believers by having brothers and sisters who were already in the Lord do the baptizing. And even when we held the first conference on the gospel of the kingdom, I didn't do the spontaneous baptisms. I asked a brother and a sister in the Lord who I had known for a long time to do the baptizing. And they, and they did all the baptisms. I watched it from a hotel room. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> I wasn't even there. Again, because I wanted to see the body of Christ on display. Right. I have a similar story. Myself and another brother were hosting, speaking at a conference in uh, the Netherlands uh, some years back, and it was being held at a retreat center right on the North Sea. And uh, there were people from all over Europe at the conference, but also one of the ecclesias that was, uh, you know, a part of our relational network of ecclesias at the time. Most of those brothers and sisters were present um, at this particular conference, and a couple of sisters from Scandinavia um, at some point in the middle of the conference were, you know, just being touched by what they were hearing and seeing and observing, and um, that they felt like like this was the right time for them to be baptized. 
so they asked us if if we would baptize them and our sense again like you mentioned you know was instinctive was not to do it uh but to toss it to the one ecclesia that was there almost in in full strength and what they did was um they stayed up together all night long um, and planned out the baptism of these two sisters uh, to be done in the North Sea the next day. And um, they had a wonderful time staying up all night together. I think they rewrote a song, kind of planned out some things to do. The sisters did certain aspects of the baptism. The brothers took on some other things. Again, just just to make things creative, nothing theologically driven, just just trying to be creative and, and give the Lord some room for expression. Um, and so the next day, uh, the baptism was was planned around lunchtime. And so, you know, we all went out and stood on the shore and um, watched. And I was I was I had a lot of anticipation about this because I didn't know what the church had planned. I just knew they were going to do something. And um you know, what they came up with was extraordinary. It was beautiful. The songs were rich. The lyrics were incredibly powerful. They were completely surrounding these two women. Um, and then and then we, the rest of us, were surrounding them as they surrounded the women. And a couple of the people went out into the, into the sea with them and baptized them. And then when they came back in, there was some additional things were done, songs sung, prayers prayed, things like that. And it was so much more creative the the expression was so much more manifold than if i and this other brother had simply performed the baptism so you know you can never outshine the body of christ as an individual and so in this case and and probably many cases this was much better left in the hands of this ecclesia to plan out and to to do uh than it would have been for you know any one of us to simply perform a baptism. So just a, another aspect or angle to, to this. That's great. Well, hopefully that sheds light on the question. Paul was not opposed to baptism. He was very strongly an advocate of baptism as the means by which a person expresses their newfound faith in Jesus Christ and comes into Christ. But he didn't really care who did the baptizing. And in his mind, it was better if other believers, other new converts or older converts did the baptizing. And in Corinth, he had Silas with him. So Silas may have done some of it. Mm -hmm. um, right. We really don't know. You know, he may have baptized Crispus and Gaius and said, all right, now you guys are, are fully qualified <laughs> to do the, the rest of the baptism. <laughs> I dub the baptizers. All right, so we have one other question. It's an interesting question, and I'm not sure what to say about it. So I'll just read it and give you my off-the-cuff answer, and I will enlist Nikki V's opinion as well. Here it is. How would you deal with a person who has a nonviolent offense in their background? The person has done treatment for a gross misdemeanor crime 10 years ago. They did the time for it. I guess he's talking about jail or prison time. Would this person be disqualified for ministry? I don't have a ministry, so to speak, where I hire people. So I'd have to rephrase the question. Would you be willing to co-work with such a person? And the simple answer is, 
It has to do with what the offense was. It has to do with whether or not, even though they were treated for it, is it an ongoing pattern in their life? Or have they really kicked it and licked it? And it's no longer an issue. And if it were me, I would do my due diligence to speak to people who know them personally very well. Like if it's a spouse, I would talk to their spouse and try to find out the present state of things. Nikki, I don't care so much about a person's past. If we're going to play that game, then Paul of Tarsus was not qualified for ministry. Peter was certainly not qualified for ministry because he committed the biggest sin of all. He denied Jesus three times consecutively. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did it. He did it under circumstances that you would think not under the pressure of an official, but, you know, a maid. Right. So if he was qualified for ministry, then how can we hold anybody's past against him? My concern is the present. Is this an ongoing pattern in their life? Whatever this was that he's talking about. And I would do my due diligence to find out what his current present walk is. And his weak spots, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I would do it. And I would also enlist the wisdom of my coworkers today and the people who are close to me and the people who are involved in my own ministry. I wouldn't just make an independent decision. Yeah, that's good. And uh, your answer, and I understand that your listeners, you know, have a variety of um, church and ministry contexts. So the answer to this question really varies based on the context that Mm -hmm. uh, this question is being asked in. Um, You know, if it's a professional business type of ministry, you know, that, you know, maybe on the outward appearance looks more like a a business. There are certain protocols that you would need to follow, some of which you've alluded to in your answer. Um, if If we're getting back more towards an organic or a first century type of context, it would be vastly different because you're talking about people living in community. You're talking about somebody who would be, um, you know, going through the, the, the fires of, of living in a very tight knit environment where, you know, people get to know each other in extraordinarily more intimate ways than you do by merely attending church. So in, in that regard, living in some type of Christian community, this becomes a lot easier of a thing to answer. Whereas in other contexts, um, you have people who maybe don't know one another so well, only spend a, a very limited amount of time together each week. And so it's much harder to tell what's really going on with, with someone and in their life and, and all of that. So the, the question really has various answers to it based on the context of the ministry situation. That's right. And it also requires that you define ministry. What does that even mean? Are we talking about a paid position in a church? Or are we talking about ministry as as a kingdom community would know it, which then means everybody ministers? So, yeah. But, I mean, he was asking this to me, and so the only way I can answer it is, okay, you're talking about a co-working relationship in the work that I do. I I don't think you can get much more detailed about it. I think the main takeaway, we should not hold people's past against them. Right. But also we should not ignore it because the past could bleed over into the present. What's important is the present, what's going on in their life now, right? So I don't care if this guy did time and 
as long as whatever that was is out of his life and he no longer deals with it. Right. That's the tricky part is to find out if that's really the case or not. Well, thanks for listening today once again. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you who, whenever you see those Facebook posts that say, hey, I'm looking for a new podcast. What can you recommend? The two or three of you that actually answer those and say, the Insurgents podcast, for sure. I want to give a special honor to you. And thanks, because <laughs> we're grateful whenever anybody shares this podcast with new people so that they can, too, enjoy all of the goodness. Amen. So much goodness that sometimes you just can't stand anymore. We'll see you next time. So long. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the Insurgents has begun. Don't miss it. 